Hello and welcome back. Today's lesson in product management comes from Jonathan Hensley, co-founder and CEO of Emerge Interactive and author of Alignment, Overcoming Internal Sabotage and Product Failure. When I first heard about Jonathan's book, I ordered it right away. Alignment is one of the hardest parts of my job as a product manager, and I've really enjoyed putting his advice and frameworks into practice. In this conversation, you'll get to hear the origin story that drove Jonathan to write the book, how to build the foundations of alignment in your own company, and the pitfalls that you should be aware of as you do. And be sure to grab that link to Jonathan's book in the show notes before you close out the app. This is Lessons in Product Management. Let's get started. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, John. Yeah, excited to have you. So before we dive in, could could we give a, a quick introduction of yourself to the audience and, and what you're doing today with uh, Emerge Interactive? Sure. Uh, so I am the original founder of Emerge, and uh, my business partner and I have uh, been building the company for a little over 20 years now. And uh, Emerge is a digital product agency. So we're working with product leaders around the world uh, to support them developing and uh, delivering better products and experiences. And so that we support the entire product lifecycle from inception and through product strategy, uh, experience design, and through delivery of those products and services. And our focus today is on uh, SaaS products primarily, as well as um, other um, IoT-based products and services uh, that companies are delivering. That's awesome. That's a fun range, SaaS to IoT. Yeah. That's awesome. So we're coming up on a year anniversary of your book, Alignment, which is awesome, by the way. Um, read the book, loved it. And that's, that's really what we want to talk about today is all about alignment. But before we, before we dive into it, what, what was the, I guess, the driving force or the, the forcing factor behind you saying like, hey, I should write a book about this? What, what's kind of the origin stories? So for me, the process started um, years ago. I had run across a statistic around how um, 84% of digital product uh, transformations and initiatives fail or are underperforming. And I just found that to be a staggering statistic. And it just really lit a fire for me and, and my own curiosity to try to understand, well, what is causing that degree of failure? What, what's happening and then as I started to really explore over years of interviewing product team members and uh, senior executives to understand that problem more and doing my own deep dive in research, I realized what I'm really curious about is understanding what are the top performing people doing differently that are continuously succeeding and beating those odds. And so that really became the uh, core of building uh you know, a topic around alignment and understanding that this is a story that needs to be told and it needs to be understood. It's a conversation that's happening, but maybe not really in the way that it needs to. And so I thought the book was a wonderful opportunity to really put a spotlight on what alignment is and how it is actually impacting every facet of an organization and their ability to deliver great products again and again. Yeah, so th this topic came up in a meeting yesterday with our VP of product, and he was talking about vision and why, why vision is important as a product manager. And the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, alignment is one of the hardest parts of the job, in my opinion, and, and having a vision is a great anchor for that. 
but but I, I'd I'd love to hear from your perspective. Like, how would you, how would you define alignment? And I guess like, do, do you really see alignment as kind of the the hardest part to to get right from from your experience? It's it is one of the hardest things for sure. I think it is grossly underestimated in how difficult it is and actually how important it is consistently. And I think one of the challenges around that is that a lot of the things that are required for an organization to build alignment, whether it be with the market, to build alignment with its teams, is not that well understood about really what is the connective tissue between these things? How do you facilitate that correctly? And also there's just not a lot of examples out there for a lot of product leaders and people to reference and say, this is what it looks like when it's done really, really well. And so I think just using product vision specifically as an example is I would, it'd be hard for me to believe that anybody would argue that a product vision does not provide value, but how many people understand what that product vision actually needs to provide its audience in order to effectively deliver that value and the clarity necessary to empower an organization, its team to solve problems more effectively, to give them the clarity and autonomy to create solutions to those problems and make sure that they're always making continuous progress forward. And so, I mean, these are fundamental things that an organization is built around. I mean, every function of the business exists to deliver on that brand product and, uh, or service promise. And so if that's not clear, you've already got misalignment starting to take place within the organization. And so, you know, just to pull, to peel that apart a little bit more, when you think about the vision, you know, a lot of times it's thought of as something that is aspirational or goal-oriented, and it can easily become a dollar metric as well for many organizations. Well, we're trying to achieve X. Well, that doesn't really provide a lot of guidance for a team. So what a vision really has to articulate at the end of the day is a couple of key things. It has to communicate what is the long-term destination. And typically we want to target something about three to five years out. Anything farther than that is what Jim Collins would talk kind of like your big, hairy, audacious goal. It's too far out to actually anchor to per se for at a product level. We need to distill that down. So that BHAG needs to be a, uh, an organizational objective versus the product's objective. We're, we need to be mindful of that. The second thing is it needs to be measurable in some fashion in time bound. And so that we have a frame of reference of as an organization, if we have these constraints and these opportunities, now we have a, a, an opportunity space that we can start to create in and say, how with our expertise, our capabilities and these constraints, can we actually solve this problem and start to move us forward within that time frame to hit that goal? Saying it might sound super simple, but it becomes a very challenging thing for a lot of organizations to not only first define, but then to articulate and actually integrate into the product uh, life cycle. So it's consistently referenced and held true by uh, everyone in the organization. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, as, as we think about alignment and if somebody 
this is like resonating with them saying, yeah, like alignment is the biggest challenge that I'm dealing with, or like, it's something that I, I struggle getting with throughout the organization. I was going to ask about the foundation of alignment. Like if somebody wanted to go and start building it or trying to help build it, where would, where would you say is the place to start? Right? Is it vision or, or is it somewhere else? That's a really good question. I think it depends on the size and scale of the organization and where you're at. If you're a new company or in startup mode, you should have a clear understanding of the problem you're trying to solve. I mean, you're building an entire company around it. And usually your company's pretty small and you're, you're more agile. And so I think in order to scale quickly, uh, you need to start with making sure that everybody in the organization has a shared language and common understanding of that language. That's where I would um, recommend starting. And the reason for that is it becomes a huge accelerator. So as an example, if I talk about customer experience, does that mean the same thing to my engineering lead as it does to my designer, as it does to the product manager, as it does maybe to the founding uh, or founders of the company, there needs to be a shared understanding of these things because you're making constant adjustments and, and refinements to the business. And that vision is probably going to evolve pretty significantly as you're developing the concept for that product and that, that business. If it's a more mature organization, I would say, and you have people dedicated to already realizing that vision, that vision is even more essential to be uh, crystallized and clear from the beginning. And from there, then you need to look at how does that vision then align with the organization? If it's not the same vision, many times, depending on the size of the company, the product vision and the vision of the company can become one and the same. But if they are different, that's critical to making sure that upstream, those things are in alignment. And then are the team and their competencies aligned and the individual's understanding of their responsibilities and contributions in alignment with that vision. If there's a disconnect there, you can then very clearly identify where you need to start to drive improvement in order so you can start to deliver better products and services. Yeah, no, I love that. And common language, I think is, is really key, right? Like inspired from our, our previous conversation, uh, I tweeted about it and it definitely resonated <laughs> about uh, the, necess the necessity to have a common language, otherwise you get chaos. And there, there were three themes I picked up in the book. Uh, there were strategy, communication, and assumptions. And, and I think at first I thought about assumptions as like kind of the, the last piece of it that might happen after the first two are established. But if you think about it in terms of like common language being one of the foundational pieces, <clears throat> assumptions play into that too. Because if you assume you're saying the same thing and it means the same thing, uh, but you're but it's not, then you're already misaligned. So I guess touching on assumptions a bit, um, whether it's with common language or, or otherwise, like how, how do how do assumptions play into like how, how misalignment uh, is either created or um, misalignment like kind of sustains itself? I think it's a great place to start first off, because I think it actually directly impacts whether strategy can be effectively, you know, a good strategy can be effectively created. It impacts the ability to communicate, you know, effectively and clearly with people. Um, 
whether it's internal or external to the organization. So, you know, there's a lot of facets of, of assumptions you could start to unpack, but the, a couple of things that really come to mind. One is when we, there's a bit of this idea of like great leaders are able to make quick decisions with very little information and they're able to adapt and they have, you know, this intuition. And I think there is some uh, truth to that, but in more often than not, what you're really relying on is a leader's experience and expertise so that they can make a calculated decision that has the highest probability, hopefully, of success in building or maintaining alignment um, as you go forward. So one of the challenges, whether you're, you know, in your career path and you're growing into a leadership role, or maybe you have had a, a leadership role for, for a long time, is that you have to really understand something that's really fundamental, which is this idea of um, distortion. And so what I mean by that in, in more practicality is what's the difference between reality and truth? So my perception of truth might be different from yours based on my vantage point on the problem. And so, but the reality is, is that we might both be right or we might both be wrong. And so what's really important for uh, great uh, leaders, teams, is to understand what's the reality of the situation. So that's the first thing where we can see assumptions just creeping in naturally. We make assumptions from our point of view. Um, and then we tend to fall into these assumption traps like confirmation bias or cognitive bias. So with confirmation bias, we're seeking information that confirms our beliefs. And people are guilty of this all the time. It's just a nat it's natural human behavior. And so by understanding that we can stop ourselves and say, okay, I need to somehow verify whether or not my perception of this is, you know, unique or it's truly grounded in reality. And essentially what we're asking people to do is follow a process of critical thinking. And so that is a great mechanism at any level, at any stage in your career to really take a step back and go, Am I injecting bias or making assumptions in about the problem to be solved or about a solution or about an individual that is generating misalignment in the situation? Or if I was to have a different point of view or perspective, I would have new unique insights that would be actionable in order to move things forward. And it's difficult to do that. I mean, in design thinking, it's a practice. And so one of the great tools, I think, in you know, looking at a, a bias is, um, I love empathy mapping is one of my favorite tools for that. And actually getting a room of people together and saying, what do you think the you know, customer's ultimate goal is? What do you think has influenced them in the perception? And I use that as a baseline in how uh, guiding, I think, more effective research let's then approach our research in a methodical way where we can then confront those biases. We can understand, are we, can we validate what we believe to be true? And let's understand what is not true in the situation and making sure that we're following best practices. We're not asking leading questions. We're not being presumptive in the way that we approach, but I mean, true research 
that is driven to, to you know, unearth, you know, a, a genuine perspective um, from our customer or users. These are, you know, it's empathy becomes a, a phenomenal mechanism uh, for that. But it requires people to really step into that. And usually what I find is when they can do that effectively and they're able to switch in context, they actually are able to move faster uh, than their counterparts who don't instead of where in some cases it feels like it's an extra step, but it's actually an accelerator uh, to, to the process. And so that's one uh, example I think that's um, really hits home for me of, of how, what people need it when they think about assumptions and, and some of the challenges that come with it and some of the ways to, to start addressing that. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it's funny because people talk about moving fast and being agile, but if you're iterating in the wrong direction, you're just running fast in the wrong direction. So taking taking that time to step back and like challenge your assumptions early from the diagnosis of what what is reality versus what we perceive reality to be, to mapping out through empathy mapping or assumption mapping, what are the the assumptions we're making here, and then how do we create a test plan and a research plan to go validate or invalidate those. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, you know, bring up agile. I mean, it's a good example. I think, you know, there's a saying of fail fast, fail often, and it's probably one of the most dangerous management sayings I've ever heard. Um, and it is so misunderstood. It's incredible how misunderstood that is, uh, because it becomes an excuse for failure and, and it becomes really, really dangerous and not understanding failure in that context is only appropriate in the context of learning, right? So when we talk about, uh, you know, there's a lot of different definitions, for example, of minimum viable product as well. Um, we talked about that uh, before uh, kicking things off. And there's a, an innate challenge there because we, we are trying to, you know, we're encouraging a learning environment, an environment of experimentation and trying to to quickly and iteratively improve the products and services that we work on. But that mentality, when it is carried into uh, a leadership practice or when it's carried into, well, we're now going to be agile and, but agile, you know, and, and those things don't work honestly, when they're built on a foundation of assumption or, and usually they're, when they are uh, implemented and they fail, it's because there was no foundational strategy to begin with either to guide that process. And when you really dig into the, to the roots and what uh, drives Agile and those, uh, that kind of critical thinking and methodology, there's never once do they say that those things can be skipped. You know, those are the foundational pieces that allow you to move into those processes to iterate faster, but not with the exception of, you know, finishing those foundational steps that are necessity to drive them effectively. Yeah, absolutely. So once we have a common language and we've kind of diagnosed what the reality of our situation is, what are some of the elements of good strategy development that, that you lean on to take common language into something that kind of guides action? So I think that one of the most important things about a really well-defined strategy is it will help you start to define some of your common language that needs to be understood. So when you look at, well, so from my perspective, I'll just share kind of what I consider to be the pillars or the foundational elements of, of a good strategy. So first off, we, we talked about vision, 
that, that you need to have that destination, that true North star for the product. Second to that is you really need to understand the scope of the problem that you're trying to solve, you know, and not just uh, the, the problem itself, but how it actually starts to manifest the symptoms of that problem, the root causes of that problem, the actual impacts of that problem, and not just on the end user, but potentially on the spheres of influence around that, that audience, because they may become critical stakeholders to driving your business growth and hitting market um, fit and it driving the adoption that you're looking for in your product. So that's, it's an important ecosystem you need to understand as you define that problem space. Um, second to that is you really then need to understand clearly what is the intended outcomes you have for users? And then what are the intended outcomes you have for the business? And usually a strategy may have one or the other, uh, but not both. And it's really critical that you do have both because if those are in misalignment, then you have friction happening from the beginning in the product between your intended goals as a business and the viability of your business to succeed and the product itself. So that's, that's a non-starter. Next is you really have to have a coherent and cohesive approach on how you're going to solve that problem or the, you know, the area of focus. And then uh, you need to have a clear understanding of how you're going to measure forward progress towards that North star. What does that incremental measurement look like? And so, those are really the foundational elements, uh, in my opinion, of, of a good, well-defined strategy. And it's pretty easy to quickly assess that and see, are we missing this or is that really clearly defined? And, you know, and then when we start to look at a, a common language and how we start to address this, you can start to look at, well, do we have an understanding of what that goal means consistently? I mean, the easiest thing is this is, doesn't have to be overly complicated. It's just could be as simple as, you know, asking the person across the table, when I say this, what do you hear? And just have them mirror that back to you. And it's amazing how often that, com that very simple conversation doesn't happen. And then, and how quickly that conversation can happen and the organization can keep moving forward quickly, but it can be that simple. It can sometimes mean that the organization has to come together and reconcile uh, what that means. And so a good example of that is something as simple as, what does a customer mean to us? It seems obvious, but it's actually pretty interesting. If you start to talk to finance, maybe finance looks at customer differently because the, they, they're thinking of the person that they interact with. Product is thinking of a different person that they interact with. Maybe your product is supporting users that are different from the buyers of that product. And so all of a sudden now you have different points of view, again, truth from the perspective of the person you're talking to, but maybe not reality. And so you really have to understand what that, that definition is. So when you're talking about the customer and you're talking about the influences around them, you are all super clear on what that means. And so you know, that those kinds of exercises and conversations are, are invaluable. And what's also really helpful is, you know, when you think about that common language, if you can align your common language and to your customer as much as possible, that can be an accelerator as well. 
right? All of a sudden your value proposition is in terms that your customer understands. All of a sudden the common language that you speak um, around the product benefits and how and the impacts are not the perceived impacts to the user, but are help, help being defined by the user in those contexts. So those are a couple of ways that I think common language permeates uh, from strategy into you know, the product um, and supporting the rest of the organization's functions almost instantaneously. Yeah, I love that you call that out, right? Because I can't tell you how often I've been in companies where the internal language or jargon we use bleeds into external materials and we start talking to our customers like we would talk to each other. But if you start from the place of building a common language around the customer and how the customer thinks about things and talks about things, then naturally that's going to flow into external communications where you start talking back to them in a language that they understand and resonates with them. Yeah, I love that. I mean, one of my favorite groups to talk to when I'm trying to learn about a new, uh, you know, about a customer is the um, a customer success team or customer support. And it's amazing what you can learn just sitting and listening to those calls or reading those transcripts. Um, it's sometimes an entirely new language uh, is defined in uh, just a short, uh, you know, mere few hours of just observation. And so, and it, it's sometimes what you, you'll see happen is it, it can be easy. I've often seen it be dismissed. It's like, well, th maybe that's not our ideal customer. They just don't get it. <laughs> well, could they be your ideal customer and you don't know it? Is it a missed market opportunity or is it, or is there a miss in your onboarding experience or lack of you know, education? Is there something that's happening that's a disconnect between the promise that's being made during the upfront part of the journey versus when the product is being adopted? Are you maybe have really high conversion in your product, but you're really struggling with retention? You know, the, these are all intimately tied to, together. And so common language, I think is another uh, example can also be an incredible diagnostic tool for an organization is if we're having the same conversations as our customers, we can, you know, we're going to start to look at different facets or areas of the product in different ways. We're going to start to understand the value exchange that's taking place. And, and whether, and when I say value exchange, you know, here I am using jargon, but the, the idea being that, you know, whether whatever the exchange is of value at each stage of the customer's journey. And so that exchange, I think is important for anybody listening can evolve over time and usually does. In the beginning, it's an emphasis on time before it becomes financially driven and retention is gonna be based on, you know, value of the problem you solve and the in contrast to competition and switching costs um, as an example. So, you know, those things become very powerful uh, to start to understand and in, across a product team. Yeah, and I'm gonna go back to something you said a second ago, um, not just like the customer language, but as you're developing strategy and defining outcomes, like keeping the, the dual focus on business outcomes and customer outcomes, because it like those things need to, to align. <laughs> right? um, it, you, can't, you, you can't solve customer problems at, the expense of your business and vice versa, you can't overemphasize 
business objectives at this at the expense of your customer if either of those things are true you're, you're going to find suboptimal results so i love that you called that out yeah it's, it's a big thing i mean there are a few case studies out there of companies who have created strategies where and they're in a position to maybe lose money year over year for a period of time to either you know take market share or to um you know, build up the uh, scale so they can hit a network effect with whatever they're creating. I mean, there's definitely those examples out there, but they're usually the exceptions. They're not the rule. And so, you know, the, the practice of understanding how that those things need to be tied intimately together and is um, just, I can't overemphasize that enough, just how important it is. And I will say in the process of writing the book, I mean, we did well over a hundred interviews of people at every level of, of the organization um, from startups to, you know, fortune 100 companies. And you would consistently find that the uh, individuals across their careers who have consistently been delivering great products and services. Um, I mean, it's astronomical to do it once when you think of some of the statistics to do it five times, 10 times. I mean, it's unbelievable what the odds, uh, you know, must be. And they understand that those things are tied together just inherently. They don't operate any, any other way. And so it's really, uh, an incredible example of when that is, if it's not inherently understood, it needs to be a discipline. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, I have thoughts and scenarios going through my head right now of like, when those disconnects have happened and, and what it's led to. So, um, so yeah. um, cool. So as we talk, as we talk about alignment, I know I called out kind of the three themes that I saw. Are, are there other areas uh, of alignment that you've seen kind of th throughout your interviews or just in practice with, with Emerge where, um, like, are there, are there key pitfalls that the listener should be aware of as they're trying to either create or maintain alignment? Well, I would say in practice, I, I lend towards that just because I think, you know, it's when you're in the thick of it, uh, I think it's just a little bit more actionable for, for anybody listening to this is that one is, I, I think maybe just, I'll take a step back and just define the way we, we look at alignment, because I think that's really important uh, to, to your question is when we look at alignment, we look at it at, at four levels and we've touched on them, but just to kind of codify it for for folks, you know, we look at first individual alignment. Does somebody understand how their efforts contribute towards the outcomes and uh, to, to the work that you're doing? And so that idea of, of individual alignment and them understanding their value becomes very important, especially uh, today. I think people want to know how their effort and their time matters. Um, second is team alignment. How is the team actually aligned to achieving the intended outcomes um, and bringing their collective experiences and expertise together to do something greater than, than the sum of the parts? Um, third is organizational alignment. And uh, the fourth is alignment to the market or to your, your, your target market. So when I think about the idea of how do you need to like be proactively in developing alignment and where does it fall apart then is 
a couple of scenarios come up just top of mind immediately. I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but the one that you see is if you're in a company that's scaling, the, the more people you add, the more intricate um, layers of communication you have. So for every person you add, the point of the value of alignment is increasing exponentially. And so, it, but it also gets more challenging to manage and to support. So alignment is not a one-time exercise, just like strategy is not a one-time thing, right? Strategy should be done in the best case is an episodic thing, something that happens based on the velocity of your business, whether it's monthly, quarterly, annually, every three years, it's all relative to you know, that organization's velocity. And alignment has to be thought about the exact same way. How do you help reinforce and you know, talk about what that vision is? How do you report against progress on that vision to the organization? How do you help people understand the, you know, these priorities for this quarter are going to, in, are intending to these outcomes are gonna move us this far. That layer of clarity and communication is a necessity. And often any one of those becomes a linchpin in the organization where you start to see misalignment take place. Um, the other challenge I think is, is that, especially around strategy and misalignment, is there's a lot of frameworks out there today. And a lot of the frameworks are great, but roughly in, in the late 70s and the 80s, this idea of consulting companies developing frameworks where you could kind of fill it in became synonymous with an understanding of strategy. And it's like, well, no, that's not strategy. That's, that's a framework to help you with critical thinking. That actually doesn't define strategy whatsoever. So unfortunately, what's happened is there's a lot of misalignment around strategy itself as well that organizations are now struggling with because they're, they've applied a framework, but not actually understanding how to then apply that framework through, holistically through the organization. Like, well, if we say this, what does that mean? What does that actually look like? And so I think that it's important for uh, a company to understand that those are areas and opportunities for misalignment. There's also common, I would say, symptomatic issues of misalignment. Um, if there are common issues around things running over budget, things taking longer than you would expect, and I'll just pick those because those are really big ones that happen all the time for, for folks, is those are symptoms, not root causes typically of misalignment in an organization. Did you have a misalignment on expectations? Was it a misalignment of resourcing? Was it a misalignment around uh, we had to rework uh, things because uh, the assumption was is you know work was further ahead than it was. So you can start to systematically work from the the issue or in the current outcome, and you can start to systematically diagnose and work backwards towards um, you know what's happening. And it's usually pretty clear whether it's a strategy issue or it's an issue around delivery. Um, and those, those can really be pretty well defined and articulated very quickly. And so those tend to show up as things of like, maybe we skip some steps. Now it's okay. Sometimes we don't know the steps we need to take. That's okay, right? That doesn't mean you failed. It just means that you needed to learn that these are the steps you now need to take. That's a, 
you know, a team, an organization going through maturity. So I want to put an emphasis on here is just because you have misalignment doesn't mean you are failing. It just means that has to be part of your, your learning culture and your organization and taking ownership of, you know, that alignment is an essential accelerator. Now you're learning that lesson on how to do that. Other common things that, uh, you know, we've talked about are where assumptions are made around customers. Uh, there's common issues around um, siloed knowledge is another one that happens uh, quite commonly, especially in, in mid to larger scale organizations where that institutional knowledge is not actually managed as a discipline. Um, this is something that personally fascinates me to the nth degree, because here you have these large organizations that are really doing incredible things, but a lot of times they're doing incredibly inefficiently. And so um, it's no one person, anyone's intent that they, that that is happening, but knowledge can easily over time become institutionalized or siloed. And what really needs to happen is we need to democratize that information and we need to break down those silos and make it accessible to teams. So they understand why did we make these decisions or, you know, we have this thing happening over here. We could leverage that. Um, a great example is I was working with a team not too long ago, and they have an entire product in market. They were going through an entire evolution and redesign of that experience, not realizing that another part of the, the company had, it, had created an entirely new design system. So now what they're now they're contending with product fragmentation. Unbelievably common. And it's, and it's not surprising. They're, they're, they're off kind of siloed in their own sides of the business, very focused on their goals. Nothing's being facilitated to manage the institutional knowledge and the opportunity to collaborate and, and share resources that's happening. Um, yeah, it, it's so. interesting that, that you, you bring that up, right? Because I think a lot of times when we talk about communication, we instantly think of verbal communication. But as you talk about institutional knowledge and things staying in silos, like having, and you, men you mentioned accessibility to information, right? Like having written communication and, and documentation that can be openly shared and accessible to all, uh, I think is a piece that isn't talked about enough in terms of common language, communication and alignment. Well, it's like a really good example is of, of where it becomes really powerful. Say you have a, product that's, uh, and your, your team's growing, you know, and, and hopefully everybody that's listening is, is in that situation, uh, you know, that, you know, you have, you have a product that's growing, maybe it's a mature product and you've, you, you're, you're hitting that hockey stick moment that you've been hoping for and you need to add to the team, you know, that level of documentation, that, uh, knowledge management, Think how critical that is to making sure those new team members are onboarded and start to understand the common language in the organization, start to understand the scope of the product itself and the problem that it's solving, starts to understand the intended outcomes of the product, especially as it relates to maybe the area of the product that they're working on, maybe that they're working on a specific feature or aspect of it. That becomes essential to them quickly being able to now bring their experience and expertise and contribute to moving forward. And, you know, that's not um, something that's, you know, very well thought through a lot of times. 
It's like, we're going to, we'll just, we'll just get by. We don't need to worry about the documentary. We'll get there later. And it's, you know, you're, there's, um, you know, the, the term of technical debt is pretty well understood, but there's, I think, you know, there's also, and, and maybe, it's, you know, design debt is, is starting to pick up. It's, it's uh, an understanding of it. Um, and, and from a, that side as well, but there's also the, the debt of the, there's a knowledge debt that you accumulate over time. And sometimes if that debt gets too high, you're not able to pay interest on that anymore. And so that becomes just, you'll see an organization that can literally be ground to a halt. And so when an organization can no longer innovate or move forward because there's too much, uh, it, it's just, it's too problematic. And, and that becomes, uh, you know, so, so challenging that you'll start to see all of a sudden, well, now we're going to create an innovation team. We're just going to, we're going to separate them entirely. And it's like, well, is that, I understand why that happens, but you know, I, I can't help myself, but stop and think is, is that really the best way? Are we solving the right, right problem by doing that? Maybe in the short term, but is that really address the root cause of why we needed to do it in the first place? And it, I think it, it a lot of times, a, sorry, it, it oh, doesn't uh, account for the, the constraints, right? Like just because you ignore the constraints, which is probably one of the reasons why you separated them, it doesn't mean they go away. So even if you try to bring innovation back in, you still have the same constraints that you were, you started with. Yeah. I, in, you know, one thing that um, I like to think is like, you know, when you look at your product, you know, probably 80, 90% of what you work on in your product is to some might feel mundane, but it's where the value creation is taking place. Um, but, you know, product, I, I think I like to think of as an innovation portfolio, you know, what's, what are those 5% of really kind of moonshot things that you can get the team excited and passionate about to explore and play with. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, some wild, large percentage of effort. You know, it's, I, I get it. Every organization needs to manage risk, but you know, 5% towards innovation, 10 to 15% towards, you know, kind of significant change and not the rest, you know, uh, move along the, the path as it needs to. Um, you know, that's, I, I find a lot of times a way to keep teams engaged and inspired is to really be able to give them those opportunities instead of separating them and giving them all to somebody else that knew, yet the context and experience of the product is invaluable to understanding, you know, why that innovation might be effective. So again, that's a personal preference uh, aspect, but um, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's a tricky one for any organization to really address, but important to recognize that those constraints do exist and they need to be solved as much as anything else. For sure. Well, Jonathan, I've, I've greatly enjoyed this conversation and uh, I know everyone listening has as well. And so if you have enjoyed it, which I know you have, go make sure you pick up Jonathan's book. It's Alignment. You can find it on Amazon. Are, are there other places that you would prefer the listeners to go look for it? Or No, Amazon is great. If if, if you pick it up there, it's uh, Alignment, Overcoming Internal Sabotage and Product Failure as, as they can check it out there. And of course, if they're interested in any of uh, following some of the other stuff that uh, we do, they can check us out at emergeinteractive.com. Awesome. We'll go do that. And Jonathan, thank you for joining and, and for another great conversation. Uh, I always enjoy when, when we get to talk. 
It was a pleasure. I always enjoy our conversations as well, John. Thanks for having me. That was Jonathan Hensley, co-founder and CEO of Emerge Interactive and author of Alignment, Overcoming Internal Sabotage and Product Failure. Be sure to grab the link in the show notes to Jonathan's book. And while you're there, leave us a five-star rating and review. If you've been listening for a while and want to support the podcast, you can click the, the support link in the show notes and donate as little as 99 cents a month. All donations will go towards building Path to Product, a marketplace to help aspiring product managers get training, the hands-on experience they need, build a portfolio, and connect with recruiters and hiring managers to land their first product job. Thanks for joining me today, and I'll see you next time on Lessons in Product Management.